is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. I didn't win. Neither did Rob. And frankly, unless you happen to be one particular person, you didn't win either. So our first topic is either a sour grape story or a dose of reality. Do lotteries really deliver what they promise? We'll go in depth. We're at a record high now when it comes to monthly mortgage payments for new homes. We're looking at whether things are going to get worse. A new late night style show is out there. We'll talk to the host about who he's looking to showcase. We start with lotteries and their problems. Jonathan Cohn is author of a book that recently came out. It's called For a Dollar and a Dream State Lotteries in Modern America. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Hey, uh, I didn't win either. Thanks for asking. <laughs> okay. So th- the whole idea of lotteries, because I, I do remember when they started to become, you know, the thing, is states allow, in effect, gambling, right? It's legalized gambling. In exchange, the promises were supposed to be that the money that people pay for lottery tickets eventually is used for good causes in that particular state and you know every so often somebody actually walks away with a bundle of money is that the way it works that that's the way it's it's supposed to work and these were uh the lotteries were created by what at the time were sort of cash strapped state governments um with the purpose of raising money you know it's it's really hard for states to find ways to raise money that don't require taxes uh, and if they can do so while providing a service in their minds for people to to play and to have fun, um, uh, all the better. Yeah, but you said it's supposed to work that way, does it? it so. It, so technically it does. You know, lotteries do raise money for states. Um, it's just never as much as lotteries claim they raise and never as much as lotteries, uh, as states hoped when they enact lotteries in the first place uh, decades ago. I've, I've always been very curious when lotteries started becoming a thing. Uh, was there one group of people or a company or organization behind pushing the idea of state lotteries to these states who were looking to raise some cash? So in in the Northeast, um, the idea was there was a lot of illegal gambling going on, and the idea was, oh, let's just capture all of that illegal gambling money and turn it into legal lottery money. Um, In California, uh, there was, as you alluded to, a single company, uh, Scientific Games Incorporated, which is still the largest uh, printer of instant scratch tickets in the world, um, that basically funded a initiative campaign, Proposition 37 in 1984, that put a lottery on the ballot that got a lottery passed. And we have that company to thank for the lotteries in California, in Arizona, Colorado, and and a couple other states. You said that uh, states don't get all of the money or a lot of the money that they thought they were going to get. Why not? So it's 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 if you don't have a lottery, um, it's hard to imagine. But a huge share of every lottery dollar goes to prizes um, in Massachusetts, which is the highest in the country. It's 72 percent. In most states, it's around 60 and some it's as, as down to 50. But 60, let's say, percent of every lottery dollar goes to prizes. Uh, 10 to 15 percent is going to go to the administration of the lottery. A couple percent are going to go to the stores that sell the tickets. So all of a sudden you're left with uh, 
20, 25% on average um, of every lottery dollar that goes to the state, which is which is nice, but ultimately is going to be a drop in the bucket when it comes to the total amount of government of money that government needs to work. We're getting more and more of these big lottery winners. You know, we're getting billion dollars, two billion dollars all of a sudden. Or is the prevalence of lottery jackpots getting that high? Does that hurt the lower tier games? Um, uh, not not as much as you would think. It, so so Powerball Mega Millions gets a lot of attention, uh, especially with big jackpots uh, like these. But the bread and butter for state lottery commissions are scratch tickets, which account for 60 to 65% of total annual lottery sales nationwide. Um, so I, I, it's, it's a good question as to whether someone, you know, is spending less on scratch tickets because they're spending more on, on Powerball, let's say, but in, in a lot of, a lot of cases, it really is sort of different players. Um, Powerball, Mega Millions, these are the least harmful games because rich middle-class people who who never buy lottery tickets, if they're going to buy one ticket a year, it's going to be for a big jackpot like this. And lower income, non-white, less educated players who spend a lot more of their money on lottery tickets um, aren't going to, don't, don't spend as much proportionally on, on, on big jackpot games. They're the ones buying the numbers games and the scratch tickets uh, every day or every week. Yeah. And let's talk about that because I, I've gone into, I don't know, I can't even count how many convenience stores in New York and in LA and in other parts of the country. And you see people who, uh, and it, it, you know, one never wants to uh, stereotype, but they look like they may be down on their luck for a variety of reasons. Yet they're shelling out, more sometimes to buy daily, weekly, monthly, whatever lottery tickets. Are these things designed to target those people? Absolutely. There, there are, there are, very, very small, subtle pieces in the game design that are sort of designed them to be not literally addictive, but to sort of keep people hooked and keep them hopeful and keep them playing. Um, I will say sort of a big takeaway for me from my interviews with with lottery players, as you've just described all over the country, you know, every time I would walk into a convenience store, I would just start start chatting with folks. Um, and you know, there's this there's this urge to say, oh, these people don't know what they're doing. They're stupid. They're irrational. They don't know how basic probability works. And and my experience is a lot of them know exactly how bad their odds of winning are and that they have come to reason correctly or not, that they really don't have a better chance of of getting a new life, of getting wealth than they do through the lottery. So so they know it's a long shot, but they reason that they at least have a fair chance in the lottery, unlike uh, in, in the rest of the economy. Uh, Jonathan Cohen, thank you so much. Author of a book uh, called For a Dollar and a Dream, State Lotteries in Modern America. We've been talking to business owners lately about how the Hollywood strikes are impacting them. Tim Pfeiffer is owner and producer of L.A. Castle Studios in Burbank. Tim, thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell us very briefly about uh, your business, how many people you employ, and, and whether you are starting to feel any impact. Yeah, first of all, I, I do feel like we're we're feeling some impact. Um, it, it's hard to say just exactly because, you know, our, our business ebbs and flows anyway, and sometimes things are a little bit slower this time of year for us anyway, but uh, definitely the, the calls are down. Um, and really more to the point, I am getting, lots of the calls I am getting are from makeup artists, caterers, uh, camera people saying, hey, you know, I got nothing going on. You got anything, uh, anything for me? So 
Um, yeah, I, I think people are, are are definitely feeling it. Uh, how long do you think you could uh, hold out? Uh, you know, I we can hold out for a while for sure. Um, that's, uh, you know, my my business um, particularly. Uh, we, you know, we've had some kind of shocks like this before, and we we have a, a different kind of business. We're, we're shooting game shows, talk shows, movie scenes, host raps, almost everything that you can shoot with a camera we're doing, but ours is a little bit different. Um, we're using a, a video game engine to create these sets. It's the Unreal Engine. So with, with, total reality that clients can be in a million dollar talk show set or what appears to be a million dollar talk show set or or an NBA basketball arena or what appears to be an NBA basketball arena all without actually paying that million dollars because the sets don't exist and so it's a really interesting way to shoot so we've we've got in a way kind of a niche business but we we've kind of experienced something like this before as, as a lot of businesses did but when covid hit everything went dead. And, and boy, that, that was a time that I was concerned, you know, what are we going to do? How am I going to pay my guys? How am I going to pay my rent? Uh, so, so it was a similar kind of shock, maybe even more abrupt than this, but all of a sudden after a, a little while, um, all of a sudden out of nowhere, when we were dead, the phone rang and then it rang again and again and again, and we actually did during COVID because we have an interesting way to shoot that requires less people and this kind of thing. Our our business actually was never better. Well, I'm thinking that, you know, a lot of people are like me, uh, you know, if I'm a makeup artist or or whatever, or I'm a, a small independent producer, I got to feed my family. I got to pay my rent. I'm not just uh, going to sit around and allow myself to go out of business uh, I, I think there are going to be some workarounds, or at least my hope is that there are some workarounds that come up that some innovative people uh, start saying, hey, you know what? I, I can't hire a union writer right now. I can't hire a union actor. Let's figure out a different way to do it. Let's figure out a better way to do it. And in my case, maybe they say, hey, look, we can't afford to be, uh, you know, at, over at uh, a major studio uh, building sets and everything else. Maybe we can shoot non-union. Maybe you know the I, I know the writers they're they're very concerned about AI. Well, maybe this is going to force people into AI. And these are just just uh, uh, examples. But I'm I'm hoping that that you know if it does if it does go on for a while that there are going to be some workarounds. They're going to uh, come back and make people allow people to again pay their rent and and put food on the table. So that's uh, but th then again, if this thing were to just uh, wrap up. Quickly, and I don't think anybody's really predicting that. But should that happen, um, then it's going to be, uh, you know, all the, these weeks that that everybody has been slow. Um, again, including makeup people and and all the ancillary businesses that go along with it, they're going to get it all made up because if it's just if it's just a short time, all of a sudden things are going to crank for an equal amount of time as things have been slow. Um, so, you know, then it's going to be just back to uh, people make up for what they lost. Then it'll be back to business as usual. But again, if it goes if it goes for a long time, I I am hopeful that that people are going to figure out what to do, saying I got to make some money and right. they'll, they'll figure out some ways to do it. Tim, you said that uh, you get calls now from different vendors that you've used looking for work. What do you tell them? 
I tell them, uh, no, we, uh, you know, uh, we got nothing in particular happening. Just, you know, nobody, nobody's canceled any productions on us. Um, it's just, uh, so, you know, those, those people that call, they're going to get that business that I'd already had booked, but it's, it's the new bookings that are, that are really going to start to, uh, to be affected. And that, that that's going to be start. that's going to be felt in my particular case, you know, three, four five weeks from now. But, mm. but these other people, the people that are calling me, they aren't, they only work uh, for me at least um, when we've got a uh, production. So, um, so that's, that, that's the deal there. All right, Tim uh, Piper. Thank you so much. Uh, owner slash producer of LA Castle Studios in Burbank. A little bit later in the show, a new media platform and late night, style show is looking to uh, boost Asian Americans around the entertainment world. We'll talk to the host to learn more about a very new venture. Uh, right now, the Redfin is out with a new report that says the monthly payments for would-be home buyers are at their highest level on record. How can anyone possibly buy right now? Daryl Fairweather is the chief economist for Redfin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So if the issue that we have specifically here in Southern California is affordable housing, we are really, really messing this up, aren't we? Yeah, it's been a, a long mess in the making. Really, for the last 10 years, California has not built enough housing to keep up with the population. So that's pushed prices up. When we talk about monthly payments uh, being at their highest level, give us a sample. Well, the monthly the monthly mortgage payment for the median priced home hit a record high of $2,656, and that was at nearly a 7% mortgage rate. That's up 15% from this time last year. So this keeps a lot of people from getting into a new home, and for a lot of people, getting to that first home or moving up into a you know a nicer home is is how they begin building their financial portfolio or they build a credit history. But we short circuit that if they are just priced outside of reach. Yes, and especially in California, getting that first starter home is increasingly hard. Those starter homes are just keep going up in price, and it makes it harder and harder for a renter to break into the market. Doesn't it also mean, talking about renters, that rents go up so that people who can't afford the homes now go to apartments and then the apartment rental costs go sky high? Well, one silver lining is that rents are down a little bit right now from last year. So if you are postponing buying a home and deciding to rent for another year, you're probably actually going to save money. It's more affordable to rent a home in Los Angeles than it is to buy one this year. But in the long run, yes, I think rents will go back up and, you know, you don't have any control over your rent. When you're a home buyer, at least you know that your monthly costs are going to be fixed. Do you see a ray of hope here or is this all bad news? I think what is good news for California is that there's been a lot of legislation that will make it easier to build apartments. There's still a lot of pushback from that at a local level. But it seems like the policy on housing is trending towards the right direction. Is the pushback from uh, homeowners who think that having uh, multi-unit buildings in their neighborhood is somehow going to uh, depress the value of their home? It might have a little bit to do with not wanting home values to go down. But I think it mostly has to do with people not wanting to see their neighborhoods change. If you think of a place like Huntington Beach, you know, there are a lot of single family homes all the way up to the coast. 
and people are afraid there's going to be soaring towers. But the reality is that a lot of people want to live there. And the harder you make it for people to find a home, the more expensive homes are going to be. Uh, what about a middle class uh, family who managed to snag a home somewhere between seven and 10 years ago? I got an OK deal on it. And uh, now they, they need to expand. They need uh, something bigger. Uh, are they kind of in a hopeless situation or or is there a way for them to work it out? And what would that be? Well, a lot of homeowners were able to refinance to record low mortgage rates during the pandemic, and they were able to lower their monthly mortgage payments that way. But now if they move, they have to leave that mortgage behind, and it means that their monthly payments could be going up by $1,000 a month in some cases. So that's a really big increase in budget just to move to a similarly priced home, and it's because of the jump in mortgage rates. All right, Daryl uh, Fairweather, thanks so much. Chief Economist for Redfin. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. The Florida Board of Education has approved new standards for how black history should be taught in public schools. And it's uh, no stretch to say it is being heavily criticized. And here's why. A document listing the standards says the standards require instruction from middle school students to include how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Andrew Spars, president of the Florida Education Association, which is the statewide teachers union. Andrew, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me th- this afternoon. That's a rather uh, interesting, bizarre, uh, many different ways of describing it, thing to include Uh, as a standard for middle school instruction. Uh, What do you make of it? We're we're quite concerned with a lot of aspects of the standards, and uh, that being one of them, this idea that slavery somehow was beneficial uh, to the enslaved uh, people, uh, especially enslaved African-Americans, but others uh, who were enslaved as well. Um, And then uh, we have concerns with the standards uh, being taught in high school, where they actually say that uh, we have to instruct in how violence was perpetrated against and by African-Americans, especially when they're referring to the Okoe massacre, uh, which was a massacre in the ni- in 1920 outside of Orlando, uh, where uh, a group of whites went after a- an African-American community, burned down their homes, uh, killed an estimated 30 to 50 African-Americans who were simply trying to vote. Uh, and so the idea that these important aspects of history would be uh, warped or and then there's a bunch of stuff left out of the history being taught uh, is is quite astonishing. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my understanding uh, from this is that it is also a tenet that's being taught in Florida that uh, teachers cannot uh, explain to a student that uh, any one race or ethnic group has ever systematically oppressed another based on their race or ethnicity. If you couple that with trying to find some thread of uh, beneficiality for slavery, uh, is that a concern to you too? Yeah, I mean, look, what started uh, last year when uh, the governor of the state of Florida started discussing his run for president, uh, he passed the first bill was what he called the Stop Woke Act. The Stop Woke Act has consequences against teachers and schools uh, if they teach certain subjects, if they go outside of what he has decreed as being allowed uh, to be taught in the schools. Uh, and it and it's concerning on a lot of levels uh, because not only some of the things I mentioned, I, I want to talk about elementary school. You know, in elementary school, 
when we're teaching kids, we often ask elementary students to explain something, to describe something, to understand something. Uh, what it says when it comes to African-American history in elementary school, all they have to do is identify and recognize key figures from African-American history. They don't have to know what they did or what their contributions were. And again, uh, to us, this is a whitewashing of history. This is an attempt to block students from learning important parts of our history, both the good and the bad, uh, because we know it's, a, it's an old cliche, but it's very true. If we don't learn from our history, we are destined to repeat it. And that is why I think we have to fight vehemently to make sure that kids get a complete and honest history. And quite honestly, that's what parents want. What are you hearing in terms of feedback from parents? So parents, you know, it, it, it's very interesting in Florida, you know, there's groups out there that are claiming to speak for parents, but they really aren't uh, groups like Moms for Liberty, um, who are really a political machine, and they've made it clear they're operating under political pretense, they are funded uh, by the same groups as a lot of these other uh right-wing political groups. They've been deemed a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, because a lot of their actions. Uh, but the reality of it is uh, parents in the state of Florida want their kids to get a high quality education. And it doesn't matter what political party the parents are registered with. They want their kids to get a complete and honest history. They want their kids to be safe and secured and loved and supported in school. And they want their classrooms to be fully staffed with teachers and staff who are credentialed and trained and professional in their work. And Florida's legislature right now and the governor seem to be preventing a lot of those things from happening. And we're starting to see parents more and more come out at school board meetings and other events and starting uh, to push back because they're realizing their kids' education is in jeopardy here. Now, we reached out to the uh, Florida Department of Education. We did get a statement back, and it says, I'm going to read it to you and get your thoughts on it. Quote, it's sad to see critics attempt to discredit what any unbiased observer would conclude to be in-depth and comprehensive African-American history standards. They incorporate all components of African-American history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. These standards will further cement Florida as a national leader in education as we continue to provide true and accurate instruction in Africa. American history. That's a statement from the Florida Department of Education. Your response. It's a very political statement, but let's look at the facts. Uh, we've just talked about certain things that are left out. Uh, you know, I, I can go on about other issues that are left out. Uh, for example, nowhere in the African-American uh, history standards they do they cite certain primary sources, sources that they're going to use for teaching. For example, they don't even talk about Florida's articles of succession. When Florida and a lot of other southern states started to succeed from the United States of America at the beginning of the Civil War uh, and the impact that that had uh, on African-Americans specifically since it had a lot to do with slavery. Uh, they also ignore the fact that Florida, when they talk about Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruling that ended segregation, uh, that Florida passed a law saying that that ruling was null and void in the state of Florida, and they wouldn't honor what the Supreme Court had said. Uh, so, you know, those are important aspects of history that people need to know. And when you leave that out, you can't say, oh, we have complete standards. Uh, you know, these are the, the, the task force that the governor set up, that the commissioner set up a, a few years ago. Uh, was developing these standards, it was required by law, they were completely ignored in the end on these standards. The task force 
was not considered, their issues were not considered, and you have a group of appointees by the governor who were performing his political ambition here, uh, writing standards and whitewashing the standards and and really limiting the learning of our kid, for our kids. All right, Andrew Spar, thanks so much for joining us. President of the Florida Education Association, that's the Statewide Teachers Union. Even though the movie Everything, Everywhere, All at Once won the Oscar for Best Picture this year, Asian Americans have long been on the sidelines in the entertainment world. But Jonathan Suosato is looking to change that. He created an entertainment platform called Joy Sauce Network, which features his talk show Joy Sauce Late Night that's uh, meant to bring attention to Asian Americans in and around the entertainment world. Uh, Jonathan's here with us now. Thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you so much. How are you? So uh, explain, first of all, uh, Joy Sauce, uh, what does that name mean? Yeah, it it's actually doesn't mean anything other than to exude a really, really wonderful sense of uh, happiness and, and joyfulness and delightfulness. And, and honestly, as an Asian-American, I've thought that for too long, uh, a lot of efforts around Asian-Americans have been really, really serious, right? And so I wanted to show a different persona. I wanted to be a little bit zanier, a little bit edgier, more fun, and uh, kind of let our hair down, so to speak. And so we took a, a a word or something that's uh, often associated with, you know, a, a panoply of of different Asian cultures and foods. And that's, of course, soy sauce. And we just kind of turned it into something a little bit more playful. So that's how we got joy sauce. So tell us a little bit about you. Like, where did you come from and and uh, and the show? Yeah, you got it. You got it. So I am a little bit of an oddball, I guess. I'm actually uh, half uh, Korean, half Chinese. And at the time in the late 60s, my parents could not, uh, they were not allowed to get married uh, by both sides of the family. And so my mom um, sort of had me out of wedlock. And uh, and this was, I was born in London. And uh, eventually we moved to Brooklyn, New York. And after a few years, after a few years, she had to give up um, sort of trying to uh, uh, raise me. And so she sent me to Hong Kong, where I was raised by my maternal grandparents. And so that was a wonderful experience. Hong Kong is an amazing city. Uh, I learned uh, how to um, sing with a Spanish accent as I was sent to a British private school run by Spanish. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, you, yeah, you, learned, wait you, you learned to sing with a Spanish accent? Yes, <laughs> that's right. Can, can so we what, hear this? Yeah, what, is that, what does that sound oh, like? Oh, no, no, no. Nobody wants to. No, no, no. To, yes, we do. You brought it up, sir. <laughs> yeah, what does it yeah, sound like? Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't even know what the what, what this this would be like sort of singing in Chinese, by the way, uh, with a because 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 the school, this little private school was like so taught wait, by what, like Spanish. Wait, this nuns. gets this gets even more interesting. So you're <laughs> yeah. you're singing in Chinese, but with a Spanish accent. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because, oh, because we got to hear that. Jonathan, yeah, we yeah. Go well, ahead. You know, I, I can't I can't replicate it. This was when I was like, you know, literally like, you know, yeah. seven, nine years old. But, uh, you know, you, you, hey, you, you want me to do a little, you know, Sinatra, a little Elvis? Yeah, whatever, little, whatever. Yes, I'll do it. But, but, but. Go, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, you're, okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's see. Well, what do you, do you have a, do you have a request? Do you have a song title? Um, how about, uh, uh, okay, a little Elvis. How's that? Uh, very Elvis, good. Area. Go ahead. Okay, okay. You look like an angel. Talk like an angel, walk like an angel, but I got wise. 
you're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are. How's that? Is that all right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, right. so the show that you have now, uh, tell us where it is and, and what's its format. Yeah. So so we created what we think is the very first 100% all Asian American late night talk show. It is called Joy Sauce Late Night. And you can actually watch it right now on joysauce.com. And we have all kinds of content out there, but there's a menu, there's podcasts, shows, words. If you go into the shows menu, you'll find Joy Sauce Late Night. And uh, and we have new episodes uh, still coming. And we have many episodes that we've we've already published. And it is basically taking the very last bastion of uh, of of what is kind of an American entertainment art form, if you will, which is the uh, 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 the, the late night talk show. The, and I say it's the very last bastion of sort of it is almost always helmed by, you know, an older white guy. And so I wanted to kind of flip that model and say, well, what if it was like all Asian American? And so so everybody from the host to the co-host to the um, uh, stand up comics to the musical guests to the famous people that we have actually on, uh, they are all Asian American and even the back of the backstage, you know, all the writers and all the, you know, uh, uh, art directors and, 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 and makeup artists and all of that. And so I wanted to sort of create this opportunity, kill a couple of birds with one stone, create opportunity for a lot of working Asian Americans in, in, in production that don't always get a shot. Um, and then at the same time, put forth someone of something put forth something that was very very different looking but familiar at the same time all right uh jonathan sposado thanks so much uh it's got a joy sauce network entertainment platform and a talk show called joy sauce late night i'm still working on that he sings a song right. in, in chinese with a spanish accent right i didn't i didn't yeah i didn't hear any spanish accent in that not, not on what he sang but, yeah. but he was saying i guess he yeah. does some selections one of these days way. we're gonna find out what that sounded like yeah All right, that's it for In-Depth today. Thanks so much. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.